0: Okay, so this is the fourth lecture for Economics 252, uh, (coughs) Financial Markets. And I wanted to talk about some really basic concepts about portfolios. A portfolio is a collection of investments. And I want to talk about risk and return, and eventually get into the, the core theory, which is the capital asset pricing model in finance. Um, But first, I wanted to say something about last lecture. Last time, I talked about innovation in finance. And I presented finance as a sort of branch of engineering in a way. We, We invent financial devices. And the devices serve certain functions. And in order to serve those functions, they have a number of details that have to be gotten right. Moreover, there's a process of invention. And the process of invention involves experimentation, and experiment. When an experiment doesn't work, we forget about it and we move on. But when it does work, it gets copied all over the world. Uh, So I thought a a nice way to uh, transition to today's lecture would be to talk about one very important uh, moment in the history of finance, uh, when the first real, important stock was invented. Uh, And it was, see if I can spell it right, Verenigde Ostindische. I might be misspelling this, Compagnie, 1602. This was the first, did I get that all right? Uh, I think I got it right. Yeah. That's Dutch, for the United East India Company. Uh, it was uh, founded in that year. when It was a time when Holland was at war, and the government uh, was worried about the economy, and they were willing to experiment with raising capital to keep the economy prospering. And someone had this idea, let's start. A company with shares in it, and let's trade them. Uh, And in the same year, and I can't write this in Dutch, but they created the Amsterdam Stock Exchange. Okay? And initially, it had only one stock. And so this is called VOC. Okay? and it was a trading company. They, they uh, were going to set them up, and they were going to buy ships, and they were going to sail all over the world, and they were going to uh, trade in various commodities. Uh, so, it sounds pretty basic. But no one had ever done this before. Uh, so, it's interesting how much got invented in this one year, 1602. First of all, they invented a corporate logo. Uh, I don't know if I have it right. It was something like V-O-C. I don't know if I did that right. Just like we would put on you know, advertisements for a company today. Um, maybe more, that's not very important. But what's really important also is that this was a long term venture, OK? There, there were lots of ventures already in Europe, uh, where a group of merchants would get together, and they would pool their money for one trip. They would send ships out, and uh, these ships would trade and come back, and then they dissolve the whole thing. But this was different. This one was going to go indefinitely. And, and in their initial announcement, they said, we're going to set up operations all over the world. We're going to have an office in India and another one, I don't know, in the Indonesia. Uh, and it's a big thing. And in, in the New World, in America. But primarily East India, (laughs) from the name, Uh, and so they. uh, But the interesting thing is, they set up a stock exchange to trade shares in it. Uh, And the stock exchange arranged so that you could trade every day. So there was lively trading. This was this was part of the idea. Because when they set up a company in those days, you could get your shares when they founded the company, and that was it, right? I mean, you couldn't trade them, or they, maybe you could infrequently. A company might open its books once a year, and they would take new shareholders in. But someone had, hey, this is an idea. Yeah, even though the VOC doesn't open its books regularly, we can trade them every day. What difference does it make? We will, you know. So, we're going to have stockbrokers on the Amsterdam Stock Exchange. And, and maybe they'll own some shares in VOC. Okay? And th- then, they'll have an inventory of shares. And then, somebody wants to buy some? You buy them from the broker. Okay? You don't have to contact the company. And then, the broker, uh, will, uh, you know, maybe at the year end, will report to the company that you own the shares. But doesn't have to, right? The broker does it. All right, so the broker says you own these shares, and you trust the Amsterdam Stock Exchange, because they have rules and code of ethics. So, uh, you think you own, well, you do own VOC shares, if you buy them from a broker. The VOC doesn't know it yet, but you've got the shares, because the broker is a member of the Amsterdam Stock Exchange, and it says that you have the shares. Then, almost immediately after 1602, a funny thing happened, guess what it was? The brokers started selling more shares than they had, right? What's to stop them from doing that? Or well, some of them did that, right? So, the broker maybe owns some shares in VOC, and he gets lots of buyers, and the broker ends up selling more, more shares than he has. And he thinks, well, I'll, I'll get them later, you know. But, and he says, what do my customers care if they own shares that I don't? I, Because I don't report it to the company right away anyway. I'll make good on this. I'm a broker. I know what to do. I'll buy them later, and I'll get them. So, you see what starts to happen? There are more shares out there being traded than there exist in the company, because the broker is selling shares that he doesn't own. And so, there there began in way back, even in this time, there began uh, what we call short. So, short interest. I mean, it happens when you set up a stock market and you allow, um, well, we we would call it today, street name, owning stocks in street name. We have stock exchanges, many stock exchanges in the world today, uh, and they, well, including, by the way, the Amsterdam Stock Exchange. Is the oldest stock exchange in the world, and it's still trading. But it has merged. First, it merged with Brussels and Paris, and now they're called uh, now they're called Euronext Amsterdam. But they're still doing this. Nothing stopped them in uh, over 400 years. They keep doing it. But this stock exchange and many others like it uh, allows brokers to sell you stocks in what's called street name. Okay. And what that means is that when you buy shares, the broker puts in your account that you own these shares. But the company doesn't know it, because the actual ownership is registered in the name of the broker. OK? And so, the broker. Uh, is selling you shares. And it's only through the broker that you know that uh, you have shares. So, the broker on the stock exchange may be, sh- may be short, may have sold more shares than he or she has. That's all right, OK? <laughs> it happened as long ago as the right from the beginning of the stock market. Uh, there was a scandal, I was reading the history of this, in. Um, who was the guy? Um, Isaac Lemaire, <laughs> a Dutchman. Uh, in 1609, um, he was able to. He was not a broker. He was a businessman. He was able to sell more shares than he had. So he had. Negative. A broker allowed him to do that. And so he had a short interest in VOC, massive short interest. Of, and people who owned VOC shares started thinking, what's going on here? <laughs> Someone is selling, he's, he, he's borrowing shares from a broker and selling them. And then that's, that, that tends to bring down the price. And there was a a downward movement in the Amsterdam stock market. And this guy was blamed for having shorted the stock and forcing down the, uh, forcing down the price. Uh, and so, the uh, Amsterdam Stock Exchange, for two years, from 1609 to 1611, banned short selling. But then they decided to let it go again. Uh, the point of all this discussion. Let me step. I'm telling you a story about Holland 400 years ago, but the reason I'm telling you this story is to try to emphasize how certain things just happen naturally. Once you set the framework up, you set up a big company, and it's a company that lasts a long time. Okay, it's very valuable, and anybody can buy shares in it. Okay, so it's it's democratic, and. The value is very uncertain, because this company is going to be in business into the far future, and it's building a whole arrangement, an empire of trading posts and ships, and who knows what it's worth. So, the price is very uncertain, and buying it is a sort of a gamble. And so, the price starts fluctuating wildly, and it attracts all kinds of interest. Some people think it's going to go up, and some people think it's going to go down, and they start debating about this, and wondering about this. And some guy like Isaac Lemaire thinks it's going to go down, so he wants to short the stock. He wants to sell, he doesn't want to buy it, he wants to short it, so he can have a negative quantity. Uh, Thank you. Other people uh, are really positive and excited about it, and they want to buy all they can get, and they want to even buy more than they have. They want to borrow money to buy the stock. So, you have this tension between the shorts, like Isaac Lemaire, and the the gung-ho traders who want to buy it. And it creates a lot of volatility in the market. Uh, But the whole effect of this is to create uh, interest in the stock, so it brings in money. And it ultimately made the VOC very successful, because so many people wanted to give money to this trading company. So, they were able to build hundreds of ships and set up big outposts all over. Um, and it became very valuable. And it was an invention, kind of a social invention. I mean, I'm thinking it's a kind of analogous. We, we have recent inventions that we think about. The social media, we have you know like Facebook and um, other recent inventions. This was an invention like that. It was an invention that got people together, and communicating, and uh, excited about something. Uh, and it created a sort of a, a game that people were playing that turned out to be productive. That's why it was copied all over the world. So, the, the core concepts, which we began in Holland in 1609, are everywhere now. Uh, and every country of the world has this. I should also add, by the way, that the VOC was a limited liability corporation. Amazing. I, 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 when I told you that limited liability came in in 1811 in New York, I think I qualified that. It used to be that some companies had in their charter an agreement that, with the government that the stockholders had limited liability. What came in in 1811 in New York, was a law that said all companies are limited liability. And moreover, anybody in the world can start a well, anyone in New York uh, can start a company. And it will always be limited liability. So don't worry, you can invest in any company. And you can uh, not worry about being sued for the debts of the company. Well, back then Holland didn't go that far, but they did create one company that did have limited liability. And so, what that meant was, you could, you could invest in this company, and it's just a game, you know? I can't lose more than I put into it. Uh, and if these guys turn out to be crooks, and some of them are hanged for their crimes, no problem with me, because I'm an innocent investor. The law says, law doesn't require that I investigate you know, whether the guys who run the company are really honest. Let's protect investors. So, all you can lose is the money you put in. So it created a, a tremendous opportunity. You know, it was talked about because it, the stock price went up and up and up, and it made people rich who invented in it, invested in it. And so uh, but it was also very volatile. It went up and down. People had never seen anything like this before, because nothing was so actively traded and so. Uh, and, and had such an interesting story that you could change your mind about from one day to the next, uh, and so it was. Anyway, uh, I, I didn't want to just tell stories. This is an, a story though that illustrates our last lecture. It was a breakthrough innovation. It was a kind of gambling, but not gambling. It was gambling on real things, and so you know people like to gamble, but you know it's usually a waste of their time. This is not a waste of time. This was setting up trade around the world. And so um, it was an important, you know, very important innovation. Uh, but now I wanted to use it as a lead-in to the main theme of this lecture, which is about portfolio management and risk. Uh, and I wanted the first concept I wanted to talk about. Is leverage well, and also let me add the equity premium. These are the two main concepts. Um, maybe I'll do equity premium first. Here's the conundrum that people were presented with, and I'll I'll, keep, I'll stay in the VOC story, but it's much more general than that. VOC. After a few years out, people thought, you know, this this company is amazing. It's just growing so fast. It's making so much money. It might have a really high return, like unbelievably high, uh, like 20% a year or even more. But l- let's say 20% a year, and that's what generated the excitement. But if some people wondered, well, how can it be? Maybe it's earned 20%, but how can that? Consistently, do that. Uh, so uh, let me put puzzle. We've gone through 400 years of history since the VOC was established, and since then, it seems to be remaining true that companies' shares do extremely well, uh, and that's a puzzle because you know. If, if you can make a, a high return on some investment, wouldn't you think that enough people would flock into the investment so that it no longer, you know there's too many people trying to do this, so it's no longer performing so well? But uh, uh, in fact, uh, it seems like the, uh, the average return on stocks has been very high. This is a theme in uh, Jeremy Siegel's book, Stocks for the Long Run, which I have on the, uh, on the reading list. Uh, Siegel has data, doesn't go back to 1602, uh, but it goes back to the um, 19th century. And he says that the geometric average return, annual return, on the United States stock market from 1871 to 2006, was 6.8% a year corrected for inflation. That's 6.8% a year after inflation. So, if you add a 3 or 4% inflation rate, that's 10% a year. That, let's compare that with uh, short-term governments, which are the safest thing in the United States. The average real return on them was only 2.8% a year. Okay. So, the difference is 4% a year. So, for well over 100 years in the United States, stocks performed extremely well. Uh, moreover, he points out, there was no 30-year period, since 1831 to 1861, when, uh, bond, uh, when stocks underperformed either short-term or long-term bonds. So, the stocks have been good investments. <laughs> what do we make of that? Uh, don't people learn? You know, think if people learn, they, they would all want to do the good thing. Why does anyone invest in something else? That was, that was, the, that was the puzzle here. Um, it's not just a United States phenomenon. Uh, the uh, London Business School professors, Dimson, Marsh, and Staunton wrote a book called uh, Triumph of the Optimists, that is, optimists about the stock market. And they looked at the equity premium in many different countries uh, of, uh, around the world. And they found that all of the countries, and that this is looking over much of the 20th century, all of the countries had an equity premium, that the stocks did better than the bonds of that country. The lowest of the countries they studied was um, Belgium, which had an equity premium of only three percent, and the highest was Sweden, which had an equity premium of six percent. So, that's an interesting question. How can it be that some asset, namely stocks, outperform all other assets? Okay. So then, that comes up. Then to uh, uh, what is the standard answer? Why is it? And the standard answer is. Risk that stocks are riskier. The price jumps up and down from day to day, so you have um, you have a uh, the the extra return is a risk premium, and so that is what um, I want to pursue today in this lecture. Does that explain the equity premium? And how should we think about the uh, the equity premium? So, um, what I'm going to do is feature the uh, the theory that was originally invented by uh, Harry Markowitz uh, when he was a graduate student at the University of Chicago, and as a, or maybe it was shortly after he was a student. In 1952, he published a classic article in the Journal of Finance that really changed the way we think about risk in finance, changed it forever. Uh, It gets back at this core idea. You know, people looking at, going back to the days of the VOC, people had the idea, you know, I think stocks are the best investment. (laughs) OK, I'm writing that down, and I'm putting it in quotation marks, because um, it's, not, uh, it's not a term that I would use. Uh, what is the best investment? Well, they say, look, the VOC is just returning tremendous amounts. Um, it, any smart person would just put as much as he can into that investment. Something seems wrong about that. I mean, it can't be true that, um, so what Markowitz, when I went back and re- read his Journal of Finance article in '52, it's kind of remarkable to me that what he was talking about wasn't known yet uh, in 1952. He, he was getting at this core idea of what's the best investment, and, and how do you judge what's the best investment. And judging from his article, that th- to me, th- it sounded so basic and simple. Of course, I've studied finance. But it seemed odd to me that everyone didn't know that in 1952. Uh, so let me. Uh, the question is I, I, I'll kind of paraphrase what Markowitz said. Uh, let's imagine that you got a job as a portfolio manager, okay? And you're kind of mathematically inclined, and you know numbers and statistics, and you know how to compute standard deviations and variances, uh, things like that. So, what is the first thing you do? You're, You're 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 a numbers person, okay? You're a math person. But now, imagine you've been entrusted with managing a portfolio for some investor, and the investor gives you a horizon. You know, let's say you're managing it for one year, okay? And you're thinking, all right, what what should I do? Well, I I want to collect data on every possible investment I could make. Not just stocks and bonds, but real estate, commodities, whatever, okay? And I can, for each of these, I can compute what the average return was on those investments, okay? And I can compute the variance, and I can compute the covariance and the correlation, right? So Markowitz, do you see it? So I've, I've got all the data now. I could say I don't believe these data are relevant to the future because I'm smarter. Right? I, I can predict that some company is going to do better than it did in the past, or some asset class will do better than it did in the past. But let's let's step back. Let's do it basic. Let's just think like a mathematician here. All right? Let's just take as given all the historical average returns and variances and covariances. So, Markowitz says, well, what's the best portfolio, given that, okay? I could compute all these numbers. What's the best assembly of all these things? Uh, And you know, he realized that nobody had ever thought that. Isn't that a well-defined problem? I I give you all the variances, I give you all the covariances, I give you all the average returns, and I say, let's just assume that this is going to continue like this. What should I do? As an investor. And it's funny, Markowitz said, he was reminiscent, he won the Nobel Prize later, uh, and deservedly, I think, this was a breakthrough idea. But he said, as a graduate student, he was chatting with someone in the hallway and thinking about this. And he said, it suddenly hit me as an epiphany. If I have these statistics, I ought to be able to compute the optimal portfolio. It's 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 mathematical, right? It's just one thing. I mean what is the optimal portfolio? It took him like two or three days to figure the whole thing out. And I you know, it's almost like I could, haven't I set up in your mind, do you see the problem? You can figure this out too, right? <laughs> I think if you put your ingenuity onto it. The funny thing is, nobody thought about it before Markowitz. So actually I I I was intrigued by that. So I, I went back trying to find. Uh, what people were talking about before 1952. And we have a new thing on the web, uh, relatively new, uh, called, do you ever play with this? It's called ngrams.googlelabs.com. And what you can do is you can put in any phrase you want. And search it for the, it goes back like 400 years in English. You can't do Dutch. I don't think, maybe you can do Dutch too. I didn't try. Uh, and you can search to see what people were talking about in books. Because they have all these books scanned in now, and now you can search for keywords. Uh, and so I did a search on uh, portfolio analysis. That's what this is all about, right? Figuring out what the optimal portfolio of stocks, bonds, commodities is. Hardly anyone even used the term before 1952. I guess it didn't exist. There was no theory of por- you kind of, imagine, how could that be? I mean, you had all these sophisticated banks and finance they had no theory of portfolio analysis. Uh, and I looked at portfolio variance, portfolio return. It all started with Harry Markowitz. Again, this is another testimony to how there are sudden breakthroughs. It should have been obvious, but somehow, people didn't think. But then I found one thing, though. I did search on engrams on eggs in one basket. <laughs> okay. and there's an old adage, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Uh, and uh, that's kind of what we're coming to with Markowitz here. He's got a whole theory of it, but uh, I found a or uh, was it? I found an investment manual from 1874. I can't find it here. I'm not. Uh, um, this is from a book 1874 about investing. There is an old saying that it is inadvisable to put all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> so it was already, in a, and he says diversify. Okay, and then he's done. He doesn't tell you how do you diversify. How do I know what I should do? It just stops there. There was no theory of risk until 1952. So, let's think about that. You you see the concept I have? You know all the variances. This isn't a judgment thing. You know all the covariances. What should I do? Well, the first thing I want to talk about is the very simple case of pure leverage. Uh, Let's go back to 1602. And there's only one stock. That's VOC. Okay. And there has to be something else. Otherwise, there's nothing. No, the other thing I'm going to say is, there's an interest rate, riskless interest rate. So, I can invest in, let's say, Dutch government bonds, which are completely safe. Uh, of course, you might say they're not completely safe, but they're, they're much safer than VOC. VOC was wild. The price was going all over the place. So. Uh, let's, as an approximation, say there's an interest rate. You can borrow and lend at the interest rate. And we'll call the riskless rate R sub f. Okay. So, th- and let's say that's 5% a year. Okay. We're investing for one year. So, I can invest at the interest rate. And this is a boring investment. It's just getting interest. It's 5%. But I can, I, I can also borrow at the interest rate. Uh, There's a market rate, and I can can borrow at 5%. You know, in practice, (coughs) I would probably have to pay a little bit more as a borrower than I could get as an investor, but let's assume that away. It's just an interest rate. And anybody who wants to can borrow and lend at the interest rate. I'll make it 5%, just for a round number, Okay. And let's say VOC, the Dutch East India Company, has had a historic average return of 20%. This is spectacular investment, all right? Um, But let's say it's, so that's its mean, it's mu, the mean of the investment. But let's say it's really risky. So, the standard deviation is 40%, all right? So, what can I do? Suppose I have only this is a this is let's do the simple problem first, okay? I have only one asset, VOC, and I have uh, riskless debt. Uh, so, one thing I can do. Is I'm going to draw a chart here showing, uh, okay, uh, and I'm going to do sigma on this axis and r on this axis. So sigma is the standard deviation of my portfolio okay and r is the expected return on the portfolio okay now i i and i can all i'm going to do is choose mixtures of the stock and the and the riskless rate so, a couple of points I can read. I'm going to plot what the available options are. I, I, can, I can see right here that I can invest at 5%, right? The riskless rate, and then I'll have no risk. So, do you see this? This is R sub f. This is zero, okay? And these are positive numbers. See what I've plotted here? This is just the, the most boring investment, because there's no risk at all. And I'm earning five percent. I can also plot this one, right? So um, here uh, is VOC. Uh, is this big enough for you to see back there? Okay. So VOC is up here, and this is uh, 20. This is a a risk of uh, of uh, 40, and the standard deviation of 20. I'm sorry, expected return of 20 and a risk of 40, right? So those are two points, but I can do other things too. Um, What if I borrowed money to buy, uh, let's say I have 100 guilders. I'm talking Dutch, okay? That was the currency of the time, the guilder. I'll write it for you. Gilder. Uh, okay, So, I have 100 guilders to invest. I could put it all in VOC stock, and I would, get, uh, I would expect to get 20 guilders profit, and I'd have a standard deviation of 40 guilders, right? But what if I said, I'm going to actually borrow another 100 guilders. I, I only own 100 guilders, but I'm going to borrow another 100 guilders and put it in VOC stock. So, that means I'll own 200 Gilders of VOC stock, and I'm going to have a debt of 100 Gilders. So, what, what, what's my expected return, then? Well, my expected return is going to be 35%. Because, look, I, I've got, I, I'm owner of 200 Gilders' worth of VOC stock, the expected return is 20%, so I'm going to get 40 Gilders out of that. But then I've, I have a debt, I've got to pay five Gilders to my lender. So uh, it's 35 is what I've got. And as a percent of my initial investment, that's 35%. So I've got another point out here with uh, this is 35, and and down here is 80. See, my standard deviation is 80 guilders now, right? Because I have $200, and the standard deviation was 40%. All right? So this is a, here. I'm two for one, two for one, leveraged. I have a hundred dollars, but I've, I've, um, I've put two hundred dollars in the stock. Okay, it's easy to do. You know, you could do this in 1602. Um, so you know, you can see how. I mean, obviously, I can. This is a straight line here. I could do anything along this straight line. Uh, and, uh, like here, would be putting uh, half of my money in the riskless asset and half into the VOC. This would be putting one and a half, 150 guilders in VOC, and borrowing 50 guilders. You see, I can, I can, do, I can go out any, as far as I want. Then there's another branch to this. What if I short? Uh, 200, uh, 200 guilders of uh, VOC stock. Okay? So, I go to the broker, and I say, I want to sell, sell VOC stock. I don't own any. And the broker would say, all right, fine. I'll lend you some shares, and then um, uh, you can sell them, and then, but you owe me the shares. All right? So, then I have minus 200 guilders worth of VOC stock. So, what is my expected return then? Oh, meanwhile, by the way, the broker says, after you sell the shares, I will get 200 guilders from the person who bought them from you, and I'll hold that, and I'll pay you interest on that, okay? So, what do I get? I expect to lose 40 guilders, because I got $200, 200 guilders of the stock. But meanwhile, I've got my original 100 guilders, and now I've got another 200, and they're all there earning interest at 5%. So, I I will get 15 guilders. So, the expected return is 15 minus 40, or minus 25. So, that's this point down here. But you can see that you can also do anywhere you like on that line. (laughs) So, what we have here is a broken, straight line. I can get anything I want. right? This is kind of obvious right now. Anywhere I want on that line, on that broken, straight line. Um, and uh, I'll, I, I can do that. So, so here's where you got saying, what is the optimal portfolio anyway? I can get any return I want. You know, the, my client who's asking me to invest says, I want 100% return expected. You say, got it. I'm no genius, right? I'm just doing the most obvious thing. Anyone who wants 100% return, uh, can get it by, oh, I'm just going to leverage. So, so, that's, so, this is what, so then I create an investment. If I have an investment company that merely buys VOC stock and leverages it, my investment company can have any expected return that you want. So, so this is what Markowitz was wondering about, well, what does it mean to have the optimal investment anyway? And the core thing that he talked about in 1952 is, there is no best investment. There's only a trade-off between risk and return. And we have to think about the best trade-off. And in this case, I've shown the trade-off here. It's this, this is what you can get. And any one of those points is available. And so, anyone who, um, who wants to invest with you has to choose between risk and return. There's no optimal portfolio in, in, that, in the fundamental sense. It, it's a matter of uh, of an optimal trade-off. And you know, nobody knew that before 1952. So, let me just show you formally this um, what I just did on the blackboard. The, the, you can say, we're going to put, now I've switched to dollars from guilders. Now we're in the in the USA. Uh, and so, put dollars in a risky asset, x dollars in a risky asset, 1 minus x dollars in the riskless asset. The the expected value of the return on the portfolio is r. That's equal to x r1 plus 1 minus x times rf. All right. It's linear. That's because that's how expected values work. The variance is x squared times the variance of the return. Uh, and so, if I want to write the portfolio standard deviation as a function of, of the expected return, I solve for x. Uh, taking this equation for x, solve for x in terms of r. So, x equals r minus rf all over r1 minus rf. And then I substitute that in uh, to this equation. Well, I want to take the square root of it, because this is sigma squared. And so, I've got sigma equals r minus rf uh, times r1 minus rf. Well, actually, I have these absolute value. Marks, it's all, I always take the. If that's negative, I switch sign and make it positive. So that gives the formula for this broken straight line right here. So that's pretty simple. That's the. Um, that's the expected value. That. Uh, um, it. Well. Uh, so. Now, I want to, though, move ahead, move on from this simple idea to, uh, we haven't really gotten fully into Markowitz yet, because this is a very simple story. By the way, this broken straight line is what we call a degenerate case of a hyperbola. You know the, remember in math, hyperbola is a curve, a certain mathematical curve. Uh, and we've all, we're seeing a hyperbola here, but I'm going to show you other hyperbolas in a minute. What, what Markowitz really said, well, OK, this is simple. Uh, this is all, uh, and Just pure leverage is a simple thing to understand. Uh, by the way, it's also called gearing in the United Kingdom. Uh, but let's, uh, let's think about now, suppose I have more than one risky asset Now uh, let's get past the year 1602, and let's think about um, let's think about assets in a more modern context. So I want to move to another example, which is two risky assets. Uh, now we've moved past 1602, and now we have two stocks. And for the moment, I'm going to forget about leverage. And let's just say, um, you can put X1 in the first risky asset, that's stock number one. And I can put 1 minus X1 in the second risky asset, that's stock number two, OK? So, what what do I get here? Uh, the expected, the portfolio expected return is just the linear combination of the two expected returns. So, R1 is the expected return on the first stock, and R2 is the expected return on the second stock. And it, you just, uh, well, actually, I'm, uh, I'm assuming you have $1 to invest in this example. I'm sorry. I was assuming you had 100 guilders over there. Now, I've just made it $1. Uh, unrealistically small amount, but I just wanted a nice number, OK? So, let's say $1 is 100 guilders, and then I haven't changed anything. OK, so um, so I, I have one, see, I start out with $1. So, if I put x1 dollars in the first one, I have 1 minus x1 left for the other one, so it's very simple. And this is the, the formula for the variance of the portfolio, which we saw, uh, essentially, we saw that in the uh, second lecture. So, what I can do is go through the same sort of exercise I did there, with two risky assets, all right? Uh, And so, what I want to do is draw a a curve, something like this, but I'll solve for x1, in terms of r, uh, just like I did for the riskless asset, and I'll plug it into the equation for the variance, and I have to take the square root of that, and I can plot that. OK. And it, you might think it would look something like that. Well, it's not going to look exactly like that, because it's risky. Something's risky. So, I did that, The calculation. And incidentally, on your problem set, you're going to have to think about issues like this. But what I did is, I took data on the average return for the U.S. stock market, as measured by the S&P 500, uh, and the variance. Uh, And then the alternative investment I took was 10-year treasuries for the United States government, Uh, long-term, because they're 10 years. But we're only investing for one year, so they're risky, because the market price goes up and down. They're not riskless. Uh, I call those bonds. There's other kinds of bonds. Uh, And I computed uh, the relationship between the standard deviation of the portfolio and the standard deviation. And, and the expected return, just as I showed you. Uh, again, using data from 1983 to 2006, and it kind of looks like this curve, doesn't it? Except, this is a degenerate parabola, but it's ins- it, it's it looks like this, right? i said parabola. I said it wrong. Hyperbola. Uh, You know how hyperbola, do you remember this from math? Hyperbolas, uh, well, they look like that, and they approach asymptotes, uh, which are straight lines. So, here is is the hyperbola for stocks and bonds. So, just as I had a point here, which represented 100% VOC, I can have over here a point which represents 100% U.S. stocks, okay. And I can take another point, which is 100% bonds, that's here. This point is 25% stocks, 75% bonds. This point is 50% stocks, 50% bonds. okay. And I can you see that th- this is the choice set that I, as an investor, have between stocks and bonds. Uh, so, is that clear? Is that any? Uh, so again, there's no. You see, all these are different portfolios. If if you're just going to do stocks and bonds and nothing else, what you choose to do depends on your taste, on your t- risk tolerance. I could go 100% stocks, but I'm going to have a lot of risk. I'm going to have, I'm going to have a nice expected return. It looks like it's about 13, 14%. But I'm going to have a high variance. It looks like it's about 18%. This is the S&P 500 stock market, and so it has a lot of variance. I could be safe, and I could go all in bonds. I could be here. Then I'd have, you know, a lower, much lower return, but I have a lower variance. So what should I do? Well, what do you learn from that? First of all, you learn there isn't any single optimal portfolio, um, but there is something. Let's talk about being a 100% bond investor. What do you think of that? Is that a good idea? You'd get this point right here. Well, right. You definitely should not be a 100% bond investor. That's one thing we just learned. Why is that? Because if I go up here, I have no more. See, that's the same standard deviation, the same risk, but I have a higher return. Right? higher expected return. So, what have we just learned? We learned that if you just stay in this space of stocks and bonds, maybe you could be a 100% stock investor, but never in a million years should you ever even think of being a 100% bond investor, OK? Because, look, it's just simple math. I can figure it out. I can figure out that I get a higher expected return and no more risk. So, this is lesson number one that Markowitz showed us. Amazing. It's so simple and obvious, right? Uh, it's not so simple, because at the time Markowitz wrote, Yale University was probably a 100% bond investor, <laughs> believe it or not. They couldn't figure it out in those days. The, uh, so, we've made progress. Uh, that's why I think Markowitz is among the most deserving of the Nobel Prize winners in economics. This is really basic. It actually intrigues me. I don't know how much you'd like math, but Going back to my childhood, I was interested in geometry. Um, and yeah, these simple mathematical curiosities, like hyperbola, are just fascinating to me. And it goes back to Apollonius of Perga, writing in around 200 BC, wrote a book on conic sections. And uh, he invented the word hyperbola, parabola, ellipse. Um, So, I was thinking of looking back at his book, (laughs) I think it still survives, and seeing what he says about finance. But I I can be sure, he had no idea that his theory would apply to finance. I wish I could go back in a time machine and talk to him. He would be so happy to know (laughs) that his theory of conic section, it it ended up applied to astronomy by Kepler and Newton, and now it hits into finance. Isn't it amazing how there's a unity of thought? and, and this simple diagram has just taught us something about investing uh, that's not obvious, not obvious until you think about. Uh, I've just told you never invest only in bonds, uh, but it doesn't tell you how much stocks and how much bonds to. Once you you know once you're above the, you, once you're above this point, it seems to be a matter of taste. There isn't any any single uh, decision that you can make. So um, now I want to move to a more complicated world where we have three assets.? Okay. We're, we're, do, we're starting from we had one risky asset, now then we had two. Now let's go even further. Let's say three risky assets. Well, the, uh, the expected return um, is the same. It's the weighted average. Now now we have three weights: X1, X2 and X3. And they have to sum to $1. I could could have written x3 as 1 minus x1 minus x2, but I wrote it differently here. It looked messy to write it the other way. And this is the formula for the portfolio variance. It's the x1 squared times the variance of the return on the first risky asset plus x2 squared times the variance of the return on the second risky asset plus x3 squared times the variance of the return on the third risky asset. And then you have three more terms representing covariances. You have to take account of the covariances of the assets because if they move together, they, if they all go in the same direction at the same time, that's going to make your portfolio riskier. And, and so, that's the portfolio variance. And the portfolio expected return is just, why didn't I write it there? It's x1, r1, plus x2, r2, plus x3, r3, where the sum of the x's is $1. $1. So, it's something that you can do to calculate uh, what is the um, optimal portfolio. So, I decided to add a third asset to my diagram. The the pink line up here is the same, um, uh, I would call that an efficient portfolio frontier. I have that in the title of the slide, for stocks and bonds. That's the pink line here. But I've added the efficient portfolio frontier for three stocks, three assets, stocks, bonds, and oil. Oil is an important investment, because it's, um, it, our economy runs on it, and the total value of oil in the ground is, is comparable to the value of the stock markets of the world. So, it's big and important. So, let's put that in. Um, and what, what I have actually here is the minimum the, the minimum variance mixture uh, for any given return, uh, expected return, for the three assets. And you can see that uh, it's possible when you add a third asset, oil, to bring the efficient portfolio frontier to the left. Okay, uh, because. We've got another asset, and it's also paying a good return, and it's not correlated very. Oil doesn't correlate very much with the stock market, so we're spreading the risk out over more assets. We're putting we're we're we're, we're putting more eggs in our basket. Okay, and uh, and so then we are we have a better a better. Um, a better choice set now, right? We can pick any point on that blue line. And so we shouldn't just have stocks and bonds. We've learned we should have stocks, bonds, and oil. We're, we're, lending, we're leading toward a, a fundamental insight, which is due to Markowitz, which is the more the merrier, the more different kinds of assets you can put in, the lower you can get the standard deviation of your return for any given. For any given expected return, and so the better off you are, so this is diversification. so while diversification was applauded in the 19th century, no one had ever done the math like this before, and now we can see that um, that you when you do the math, you want to have all three in your portfolio and, and yet people don 't know that or they don't th- there's an there's an emotional resistance to this implication. Uh, I once went to um, the um, government of Norway <coughs> and gave a, gave a talk at their um, Norges Bank, which is the central bank of Norway. And I, I, I told them in my talk, I calculate that Norway has something like 70% of its portfolio in oil. I don't remember the exact number, but it was something close to that. Why do they have so much in oil? Well, because they have the North Sea oil. And so, I asked them at the bank, don't you realize, where are you on this (laughs) portfolio? Uh, You're not on the frontier. What Norway should be doing is something like 15% they could pick this point, right? That would be reasonable. 15% oil, 53% stocks, 32% bonds, which would give them that point. Or they could pick uh, this one. I have a point label up here. That's 21% oil, 79% stocks, no bonds. All right, Those are all choices, depending on your risk. But uh, they're not going to just pick 100% oil. That would be way over here, much higher risk. Um, so, I asked them about that. Why do you do this? And I, I don't know if I got a good answer from them, but basically it was. Uh, well, we don't want to sell the oil, because it's our national heritage. You know. it's, it's our, we own it. And I said, so well, you don't have to sell it. You can just do a derivative transaction. You can short the futures market for oil and reduce your exposure. And then they said, well, some people have mentioned that, but uh, it's politically difficult. <laughs> so, they're not doing it. <laughs> maybe next year, maybe the next government will do that. <laughs> uh, so, they still aren't there yet. They're not managing their risks well. So, uh, it's a powerful and important thing, because if North, if the market for oil collapses, Norway is in big trouble. They're not diversifying enough. I, I, I don't mean to put them down. They're smart people. But like in any country, I did the same thing with Mexico. I went to the Banco de Mexico, and I talked to uh, Guillermo Ortiz when he was uh, director of it. Same thing in you know, Mexico, is, it's not as dependent on oil as uh, not as dependent on oil as uh, Norway is, but uh, I think, the, uh, what, so it's not so obvious for Mexico, but it is politics that came in, the question of, are you really saying Mexico should go into the futures market and, and shake a massive short position of billions of dollars of oil? And uh, Again, it was like, this isn't reality. We're not going to do that. Uh, but I, I tried to try to um, make the point. Now, another thing is, so I have shown here three assets. The, the pink line is irrelevant once we realize we have three assets we have stocks, bonds, and oil. So you should choose on this curve. And of course, you should never take down here, even though that's possible. Uh, in other words, you could say, what portfolio would, guarant- would give me 9% uh, return? With the least risk, Well, it turns out it's 100 percent bonds. But I just told you, never do 100 percent bonds, because you can go up to this point. All right So you never do down here. So the efficient portfolio frontier is really the part of the hyperbola that's above the minimum variance. And you don't want to do minimum variance either.? Right? This is the lowest possible risk portfolio. You can't get down to uh, zero uh, risk if all of your assets are risky. So, you're stuck here. Uh, But that's not necessarily the best thing, because people allow some risk. This is having the minimum risk, but I can get my return up much higher without taking much risk, so I'd probably do that. Okay, Now, I can do this with more than three assets. I can do it with 1,000 assets. Now that we have computers, back in 1952, I erased it, but I had 1952 here. Markowitz had to do it all by hand. But now that we have computers, it's so easy, you know, there are all kinds of programs. That, in fact, on your problem set, we have Wolfram Alpha, which will do all these calculations for you, um, for, for its own data. Uh, so, these are easy to do now. But I, what I want to do now is add the riskless asset. So, what we've done, with the blue line, takes three risky assets. It looks at only at assets with a standard deviation greater than zero. Now I want to do. The optimal portfolio, when there are four assets, I've got stocks, bonds, oil—all risky—and now I have the thing that isn't risky. It would be your one-year governments, right? It's not risky because the maturity matches my investment horizon. I know exactly what I'm going to get. It's five percent, let's say. Uh, so what can I do? Uh, investing in these four assets? Well, here it goes back to what I did over here, with this simple diagram. I can pick any portfolio on the efficient portfolio frontier, and consider that as if that were VOC, right? And then, I can, I can compute just how leverage allows me to combine that with the riskless asset, and that portfolio. Uh, so, I can pick a point. Like, I could pick this point here, uh, and then I could achieve by combining that portfolio, which is 15% oil, 53% stocks, and 32% bonds. I could combine that with any amount of risky debt. And uh, I would get a straight line going between, actually, this diagram doesn't show zero on it. I should have maybe done it differently, but uh, between 5%. So, actually, that point right here. I can do it on this diagram. That point here is like 12% uh, expected return and 8% variance. So uh, it would be some, well, it would be here, except this would be 12% and this would be 8%. I could pick any point, and this would be 5%. Any point along the straight line connecting those points is possible. So, what do I want to do if I have? I want to get the highest expected return for any standard deviation. I want to take a line that goes through 5% on the the y-axis, and is as high as possible. So, I'm taking a point right over here, (laughs) at 5%, and trying to get as high as I can. It turns out, then, that I want to pick the point which has a tangency with the efficient portfolio frontier. Uh, and so that means the highest straight line that touches the efficient portfolio frontier. And so now I can achieve any point on that line. Uh, and that's, again, Markowitz's insight. So if I were to pick that point, I would be picking uh, what, what does it look like? I don't have it indicated. It was probably something like 11% oil. 30% stocks, 50% something like that it doesn't add up, uh, and that would be holding no debt, right? But I could I could get even higher return if my client wants that by leveraging. I would borrow and buy even more of this risky portfolio. So this portfolio here is called the tangency portfolio, and what what uh, Markowitz theory shows is that the, 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 once you add the risky asset the relevant efficient portfolio frontier is now really this tangency line and so i want to do a mixtures of the riskless asset and the tangency portfolio that 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 accords with my risk preferences but i don't i, I don't want to ever just Move to one of these other portfolios. So these other portfolios, like 15% oil, 53% stocks, 32% bonds, is dominated, has a higher expected return for the same risk, by a portfolio of the tangency portfolio leveraged up a little bit by borrowing. And similarly, well, yeah. Uh, and so this is. <laughs> then it comes out, and this is the. Uh, I don't know if it was clear in Markowitz's paper, but it became clear soon after. There really is, in a sense, an optimal portfolio. It's the tangency portfolio. Because everyone wants to invest on this line, and, and that point is a, any point on this line is a mixture of the riskless asset and the tangency portfolio. And so, Everyone wants to invest in the same portfolio. So there is an optimal portfolio <laughs> in a sense, it, uh, and, which uh, it's in a sense that everybody wants to do the same risky investments. People will differ in their risk preferences, and so some of them will want to do a riskier, a more leveraged version, and some of them will do a less leveraged version of the. Uh, of the risky portf- of the tangency portfolio but everyone wants to do the tangency portfolio uh, so uh, that is the key idea of Markowitz portfolio management and it's been expressed uh, by some as the mutual fund theorem First of all, I have to just define for you what is a mutual fund. You might not know that. A mutual fund is a certain kind of investment company aimed at a retail audience. Uh, uh, they could have just called this the investment company theorem, but history I can't tell you the history of thought on this. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, a mutual fund is a certain kind of investment company that is mutual. That means that the owners of the shares in the fund are there's no other owners. It's just one class of investors. Uh, all of the, we, we, they're all equal, so it's mutual. But that's irrelevant here. The idea is that all we need is one mutual fund. There's thousands of mutual funds to serve investors, because I had that everyone is investing in the tangency portfolio, so they should call their fund. The Tangency Portfolio Fund, and and our fund is the optimal mix of of stock, bonds, oil, and whatever else. Uh, And then, you don't necessarily want to own only that mutual fund, but you want to own mixtures of that mutual fund and the riskless asset. So, uh, everyone holds, you only need one investment company. So, this is the other, I I told you this story. I said, imagine that you were mathematically inclined, and you have all the statistics, and you're going to figure it out, what's the best thing to do? We've just figured it out. I haven't gone through all the math details. There is a best thing to do. You should offer, as your investment product, the tangency portfolio. And that's it. Once you've figured it out, there's nothing more to do. There's no need to hire any more finance people. You've figured it out according to Markowitz's theory. And all the investors in the world will just invest in this one, and that's case closed. We don't need thousands of mutual funds Uh, under the assumptions of Markowitz, which is that we're agreed on the variances and covariances and expected returns. There's a single, optimal, risky portfolio. And then, the instructions to investors are very simple. All you need is two assets in your portfolio. The mutual fund that owns the tangency portfolio, and whatever amount of debt you want. So, if you're footloose and fancy free, you can even leverage it. You can borrow and two to one, three to one, it's up to your tastes. But you don't need to look at anything other than the mutual fund. Uh, so, that, that's an important insight. Uh, and what it means, then, is yeah. that leads to something else. So, uh, Markowitz didn't get this idea. It came out later. So, someone was thinking, well, if, if everyone should be investing in the same portfolio, it doesn't add up unless that is equal. that portfolio is equal to the total assets out there in the world, right? If, if, the, if, if there's twice as much oil as there is stock then there has to be twice as much oil as stock in the in the tangency portfolio otherwise it doesn't add up right because everyone has to own everything <laughs> it's supply and demand have to equal so it means the mutual fund theory implies that the market portfolio equals the tangency portfolio OK, and now I've, I've pretty much finished the uh, theory. I should say, it implies, if investors follow this model that we're having, that they all wanted uh, the, the Markowitz model. If all investors think like Markowitz says, they all want to do the same thing. They all want to invest in the same best portfolio. So, that has to be proportional to the market portfolio. So, the tangency portfolio equals the market portfolio. So, I was saying earlier, why is it that everyone doesn't invest in VOC stock? Uh, how does it add up, right? If, if VOC stock is just better than something else, then that, that suggests everyone wants to put all their money in VOC stock. But we're realizing they don't, because they're concerned about it. They, they see this trade-off between risk and return, and they want to hold some proportion of VOC stock and the riskless asset, it has to add up so that the market is cleared, and all the VOC stock is owned. Uh, and more generally, if there are many assets, all the assets have to end up owned by someone. And so, the, the, the cardinal implication of this theory is that the, the market portfolio, which is everything that's out there in the world to invest in, has to be proportional to the tangency portfolio. And so uh, one of the implications is if that's true, and I'm done with my, I have just a couple more slides here. Um, uh, let me go to here. The capital as- is it, now it's called the capital asset pricing model uh, in finance. So that's capital asset, which was pricing model, which was not invented by Markowitz but was invented by Sharp and Lintner, uh, uh, somewhat, uh, shortly after Markowitz. The capital asset pricing model, uh, and I'm not going to derive this equation, but it says the expected return on any asset, the ith asset, equals the risk-free rate, plus the beta of that asset times the difference between the expected return on the market and the expected return on the riskless asset. Uh, I was just going to try to explain this intuitively, (laughs) and then I'll I'll be done. I have one more slide about the Sharpe ratio. Uh, But the intuitive idea, let me just say, everything should have a very simple explanation. The intuitive idea is this. Starting from Markowitz, we got an understanding of what risk is. And people didn't clearly appreciate that. People used to think that risk was uncertainty, right, in in finance. That if a stock has a lot of uncertainty, that uncertainty means that it's a dangerous stock and people will demand a high expected return. Otherwise, they won't hold the stock. But the CAPM says no, people don't care about the uncertainty of a stock because if it's one stock out of many, they'll put it in their portfolio, and if it's independent of everything else, it all gets averaged out, and so, who cares? So, people don't care about variance. Well, what is it that people care about? People care about covariance, risk. This is the basic insight that followed from Markwood. People care about how much a stock moves with the market, because that's what costs me something. I don't care if I could I can own a million little stocks that all have independent risk. It all averages out. doesn't mean anything to me. I'll put them in tiny quantities in my portfolio. But if they correlate with the market, I can't get rid of the risk, because it's the whole, the big picture risk. That's what insurance companies, that's what everyone cares about. It's this market risk, the big risk. You only care about how much a stock correlates with the big picture in its risk. So, that's measured by beta. The beta is the regression, the slope coefficient when you you regress the return on the ith asset on the return of the market. So, high beta stocks are stocks that go with the market. So, we found out that Apple has a beta of 1.5, or roughly that. That means they respond in an exaggerated way. It's not one. It's greater than one. They more than move with the market. And so investors will demand a higher return on Apple stock because its beta is greater than for other stocks. That's the core idea that underlies it. Do you see that intuitively? So you have to change your idea of what risk is. Risk is covariance, it's co movements and not. Uh, I have just one more slide here. It's named after William Sharp, who is the. Uh, Inventor of the with Lintner of the capital asset pricing model, the Sharpe ratio is for any portfolio the average return on the portfolio minus the risk-free rate divided by the standard deviation of the portfolio. Uh, And if you take the CAPM model, uh, the 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 Sharpe ratio is constant along the tangency line. Uh, This is a way of correcting. The the average return from some investment for leverage. The idea is some companies used to advertise we've had a 15% average return, and then investors would say, but wait a minute, you didn't tell me what your leverage is. That's the first thing you should learn from this course. Someone advertises that they had 15% return. You say, ha, I want to know what your leverage was. I want to know really, you know, how to you were just leveraging it up and taking big risks and Uh, on average, you'll do well, but it's risky. So, this is the correction you make. So, how do you correct for leverage? You might say, well, I want to look at what fraction of the the investment portfolio is in the risky asset, and what fraction is in the riskless asset. But it's not so easy to do that, because the company can cover up its tracks. It can invest in a company that's leveraged, right? And so, you'd have to go one step further and undo the leverage for that company. It's hard to do that. But the easy thing to do is just calculate the Sharpe Ratio for the investment company. So, if some guy is investing and s- claiming to have done 15% of return per year on his portfolio, uh, well, you lo- I'm, I'm going to look at the standard deviation of the portfolio. That's evidence of how leveraged this guy was. And I'll compute the Sharpe Ratio. And unless it's bigger than the Sharpe Ratio for the, you know, the typical stock, I, I don't, I'm not impressed. Uh, Anyway, so I think I've come to an end of this lecture. So, what you should have gotten from this lecture is a concept of risk-return trade-off, a concept of of, uh, optimal portfolio as being something subtle and related to Apollonius of Perga in difficult ways, but there's also very simple things about how to evaluate portfolio and portfolio managers that comes out of this.